What level was was Curtis in the drug dealing world? He was the he was the highest level. He was more of like a trafficker and operator where, you know, guys would come to his house and pick up the the, the drugs and it was I believe it was it was crack and crack cocaine were, were some of the you know, some of the drugs and there was heroin in there too. Um so, you know, he would not be on the front lines in some of DC's worst neighborhoods. Instead, he would be providing to guys to bring out to the front lines. You watched them. You cheered for them. Maybe you booed them. You listened to them. You were impressed by them. Today, they share their favorite memories with you. It's the Give Me a Sense podcast. Here's your host, Mike Yam. Well, a special guest today on the podcast, and I say special because he is one of the finest sports writers in the country. You can follow him on Twitter at SIPThamel, and of course he is from Sports Illustrated, and it is Pete Thamel. Pete, appreciate you coming on the show with us. Mike, thanks for having me. This is uh, this is this is a treat. I'm excited to, uh, to to be part of this new world. Well, look, podcasting, you know the whole deal and and how it can get a little little crazy at times. But this podcast, and I gave you a little bit of background, but it's all about stories. Yeah. And I'm not going to ask you anything about what's happening in sports right now. But I did say to you because I, I I read your stuff pretty religiously, and I said, look, you know, Pete, I'd love to have you on the show and kind of share a story, how it started, what was in your mind. And you picked one from a few years ago. And the name of the story uh, is actually Out of Power, How D.C.'s Most Prominent AAU Leader Landed in Jail. Some of the quotes are absolutely wild in reading it. But you've you've written so many different stories. So why did you decide to go with this one? Well, I wanted to do your podcast justice, Mike. I wanted uh, I wanted a, a story that would uh, that would that would accentuate what is uh, what is what is a really neat idea, and I'm definitely flattered to be on with you today. Um, I just thought that it was a it was kind of a nuanced story, and there was some there was some depth to it, and it was just more than your typical athlete profile, and it was more than your typical. Uh, you know, just run of the mill. This team's hot kind of stories that we, you know, we can get can get in a rut of writing sometimes, or your typical columns about this or that. So that was kind of a story. I look back uh, at that story as a little bit of like a manifestation of like a career's worth of observing basketball and knowing how the AAU world works, knowing how college basketball works, and just sort of knowing the scene in and around uh, in and around basketball. So um, and the, the the gist of it. Uh, for your listeners, none of whom have likely ever read it, is uh, that Curtis Malone was a uh, you know the most prominent AAU coach in the Washington D.C. area for two decades, and uh, he had been a convicted crack dealer before he launched his AAU career, and then swiftly and suddenly he uh, disappeared and got thrown into uh, thrown into jail for uh, you know running and operating a drug ring. Okay, let's back up here. So Curtis Malone, he's currently, by the way, in jail for for some of our listeners. It was like an eight-year prison term or something along those lines. But explain to me how a guy that's been convicted of being a drug dealer can advance his career and then become one of the most prominent AAU coaches in the country and still continue to deal drugs while while he's coaching or at least around the team. Sure. Well, it's – it, it, the, the story itself is a little bit of a microcosm of why that you know arena has been such a challenge for the NCAA 
and it's a challenge for college basketball coaches to navigate and legislate because there really aren't that many rules. And ultimately, that grassroots world is the wild, wild west. And if you control players, you get the power, you get the shoe deals, and you can, you know, you can you can run a very prominent AU program. It all comes down to players, and it you know it shows if you have players, you're going to have power and you're going to have money. All right. So, how powerful of a coach? Give me some some context and perspective on just how dominant he was in the AAU world. I mean, he was. You know, Michael Beasley, who was the number two pick in the draft, he obviously hasn't panned out to be quite the professional basketball player people thought. Although he's the MVP in China last year, um, <laughs> was probably Curtis's most prominent player. Um, but he had a bunch of other ones. Uh, Demar Johnson, I don't remember Demar Johnson from Cincinnati, mm-hmm. um, who was a, who was a top ten pick. Gosh, probably twelve years ago now. Um, was one of his, you know, early big time, big time players who, uh, who, who went, who went through that program and helped him, helped him build it up. And over as, as the years went upon years, not only was he able to, you know, he had at least, uh, he had many first round picks. He had hundreds, and that's not an exaggeration, hundreds of division one scholarship guys. He would have at least a dozen every year. I mean, his players went to, you know, any school you could you could possibly think of. They, I mean, the Salt guys went to Harvard. You know, they went out west. They went to ACC, Big East, Big Ten, SEC. Um, you know, they they um, they populated colleges. You know, sort of near and uh, near and far. And then it became a thing where, if you want a relationship with Curtis, you would hire his guys to be assistant coaches in your program. And so uh, Delonte Hill, who was at Charlotte and then at Maryland uh, and at K-State for a long time, was, was one of those guys. But there's, you know, there was at least a half dozen guys who, who went through that program who ended up, uh, who ended up as prominent Division One assistant coaches. Uh, David Cox, who's at the University of Rhode Island now, is one of those guys. He was at Rutgers and a few other places. Um, Georgetown, too, I believe. So it is, uh, you know, it's, it, the story is a lot about, building power, Mike, and how to, you know, how to use and leverage players and access to players to build kind of an empire. And Curtis had an empire. He was a, he was a basketball don. You know, it's funny because you use, you know, powerful players and use those players. And I hear the word use. And yet at the same time, it's interesting because, and you look, you made reference to it, you know, this world and how it can get a little, little dicey. It's not necessarily the most up and up uh, business. Now, there are some AAU coaches who do wonderful things for their kids, but it's funny because he actually, it's, it's this weird dichotomy of a, of a drug dealer, but a guy that in a lot of ways was a father figure to a lot of these players. It, it was almost like he was truly actually helping a lot of the guys that, that went through his program. The guys who went through his program, and I spoke to a lot of them, they swear by him. I mean, they absolutely swear by him. Um, one of them is Nolan Smith, who, who played at Duke and was a first-round pick and is back kind of on the periphery of that Duke basketball staff now. That's actually his stepson. Um, Curtis married Nolan's, uh, Nolan's mom, but you know, there are a, you know, a crew of loyal, loyal guys who think that when Curtis gets out, he should go right back into the shoe game. Um, wow. they, you know, in your dichotomy is the perfect word, Mike, because, you know, the, 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 the paradox was that he was saving kids from the streets, the same streets that he was filling with drugs. Okay, I'm, let's. I also should have started here and, and backed up a little bit. 
when you hear drug dealer, right? I mean, most of us will say, all right, is it the dude on the corner, you know, kind of in the bad neighborhood selling something he shouldn't be selling versus the mogul, the guy that's that's really orchestrating the whole thing. What level was was Curtis in the drug dealing world? He was the he was the highest level. He was more of like a trafficker and operator where, you know, guys would come to his house and pick up the the, the drugs and it was I believe it was it was crack and crack cocaine were, were some of the you know, some of the drugs and there was heroin in there too. Um so, you know, he would not be on the front lines in some of DC's worst neighborhoods. Instead, he would be providing to guys to bring out to the front lines. So what, what, what are we talking about, Pete? In well, terms of money, in terms of money, what, what's give me a figure? Boy, you know that that's that's a really good question, Mike. And uh, you know, it's something that when I when I spoke with the authorities about the story and everything, it was something I I, I pressed them on. And I'll be honest, I haven't read the story in a little bit, so I, I think there were some dollar figures dollar figures in there. Um, they disputed very much in court. I remember, and I remember talking to Curtis. You know him downplaying how much was there. But I believe when they went to his house, they found large amounts of cash. And, I mean, he was making a lot of money. Um, you know, and it, it, it would be, I guess, impossible to completely quantify it because that when you're in that drug world, what you're doing is you're, you're stashing and you're, you know, moving and you're, you're funneling money in order to, you know, not get caught from the IRS. And, um, but, you know, it was funny. Everybody said, like, you know, the AU team went out to dinner. Curtis always paid cash. You know, <laughs> Curtis always paid cash. Curtis always paid cash. So, I mean, that's the that's the world that uh, that he lived in. But when you're a powerful AAU coach, right? I mean, there are shoe companies. I mean, I think if anyone watched the 30 for 30 on ESPN uh, with Sonny Vaccaro and what he was able to do for Nike and then Adidas, I mean, it, it's not like they're not getting paid. From, and getting big shoe deals, and if you're one of those prominent coaches, you got to be earning some pretty good coin. Yeah, he he had a giant deal with Under Armour that was multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, and he had been with Adidas for years, and then switched over to uh, to Under Armour. And I remember when when it happened and when he got arrested. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was that the people around him were very mad that uh, DC Assault, the name that they had built, the brand that they had built over the years was going to be changed. They're now called DC Premier. And it's a lot of the same lieutenants and guys who worked with Kurt, but um, they were just, they were indignant. And he was indignant at the fact that that name was going to go away. You spent time with Curtis too. And at one point, I think in the article, you even wrote, he had said something to the effect of, it's a lot easier being a drug dealer than an AAU coach. Did that, yeah. I mean, I, I if that was me, if I heard that, I'm, are you kidding me? My jaw would have dropped. Yes, it was. It was certainly one of the moments I went and saw him at a, a, a minimum security prison uh, right outside Bucknell University um, in is that Lewisburg, Pennsylvania. I and, believe you're uh, right. Yeah, I remember flying into Williamsport. I'd never been to Williamsport before, and um, <laughs> that's where they. I have been to Bucknell. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's. Uh, I actually didn't go through campus, but I went to the Panera. It was it was delightful. Um, got there early. The, um, the it was minimum security. I'll never forget. There was bocce courts there. Um, that was that that stood out. That stood out in my mind. And and I 
it was more than me just walking in and talking to Curtis, but it wasn't much different than that either. You know what I mean? Like it was, I was sort of like, Oh, here I am. I've gone and seen uh, other athletes in jail over the years and at, at more stricter and like one place they were like, you need to leave your phone and your wallet and your car. Like, you know, you, you can't have a belt on, you know, they're all like rules. There were rules like that. Uh, I'd gone to a, I believe it was a maximum security, maybe a medium security uh, to go see a, a former player at West Virginia named Jonathan Hargett. And, um, yeah, but the, to go see Curtis, it was like, oh, okay. Um, they had a basketball court there. And, um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting, it was an interesting experience. And, uh, I, I thankfully, you know, he certainly didn't have to talk to me. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I reached out to his family and I had written him some emails and, uh, and, and I was, I was happy that he did. I think he was happy that he did just to get his perspective and his side of the story in there. And I, you know, went through lengths to not only tell the side of the the DEA and the side of, you know, the, the basketball side of things, but also through the through the eyes of his former players and, you know, the people whose lives he impacted to show the, the dichotomy of Curtis. What kind of guy is he? Well, Curtis is very charismatic, Mike. Uh, I mean, you, you don't get that far in life, uh, meaning, you know, amass that much money and amass that much power in just the basketball world. I can't speak to the drug world, but you don't get that far in the basketball world without having a gift to engage with people. So he was, you know, not as I'd known him over the years. I wouldn't say I knew him well, you know, I had his number and I would call him if I was writing about one of his players. And uh, we knew a lot of people mutually, um, which I think helped me a little bit just in terms of, uh, you know, credibility wise, getting, uh, you know, getting in there to, you know, and letting him know, you know, I was going to tell the whole, you know, the whole, every side of the, uh, every side of the story. Um, but, you know, person after per- people like Curtis, you know, they, it's just, they did, um, you know, in, in that, in that world, they, they found him to be, uh, they found him to be charismatic and engaging and likable. And there's more on that. You- touched on Michael Beasley a little bit earlier. In your article, there is some more conversation that you do write about. Once again, it's on Sports Illustrated, SI.com, Out of Power, how DC's most prominent AAU leader landed in jail. I want to circle back, though, to the time when you go to visit him in jail. And maybe not just Curtis, because mm-hmm. it didn't seem like it was the most intense environment because of some of the other situations when you when you visited other um, athletes or, or whatnot covering a story. What's it like to go to a prison to do an interview, maybe when the rules are a little bit stricter. How intimidating is that? I mean, you don't feel unsafe because well, you're in a prison, you know? So, um, and when I went to Jonathan Hargett, there was a guard, you know, with us the whole time. We sat, well, it was in a classroom. And, uh, you know, it's, I think it's humbling in a way because you're just looking around and you just, you know, you realize, I don't know, it was, it, it's just a snapshot of a world you don't, you don't see every day. And so it was, uh, it's a little bit, it's a little bit surreal. And, um, you know, I remember Hargett being really just anxious to talk. Um, I remember definitely going into those interviews and you always certainly want to go into interviews prepared, but I remember being like super prepared, you know, you don't get another chance. So, you you know, you've got to, you've really got to have your ducks in a row. I was able to tape the Hargett interview. They did not allow me to bring in a recorder for the, uh, for the Malone interview. So, um, you know, brought a couple pens and, uh, you know, was sure to be over caffeinated. So, cause to keep up an interview of that lane, 
is, uh, you know, you can do it, but you got to be, you got to be kind of locked in. So are, are, you, are um, you surrounded by guards? No, there was one guard, uh, a woman escorted me when I went to see Hargit. I might've gone to see him twice actually, because I went there and then I went and spent like a month verifying everything he said. Um, with Curtis, he was the last interview for my story. Someone sat in like a warden sat in on the interview, but, um, no, there was no, uh, I mean, it's a minimum security prison, so it's pretty loose. You know, it's a pretty, as those things go, it's a pretty loose environment. Did you envision, I mean, cause your career is, it's pretty substantial. I, I introduced you as one of the finest sports writers in the country. And I think that certainly applies for a lot of the work that you've done over the years. But when you're at Syracuse and that's where you graduated, did you envision that you'd be doing stories like this, heading to a prison and, and talking to, to, to athletes that are in trouble as opposed to – because you started saying, hey, you know, I picked this story for you, Mike, because it wasn't you know, team on a hot run or uh, you know, team playing really well or, or a losing streak. This is, this is a pretty meaty story. Yeah, well, um, you know, God, when I was at Syracuse, I was like I could barely see past my nose. You know what I mean? Like it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to envision that. I've been really lucky and fortunate to, to end up working at great places that – you know, like the New York Times and Sports Illustrated that have allowed me to – the resources and the time to go do complex stories like this, to go do, you know, deep, you know, really dig in and do, and, and do the work on, uh, on, on deep stories like this. So, um, yeah, like, uh, you know, I was, I was going to joke that going to Syracuse, you do get a lot of experience covering athletes in trouble and, uh, NCA issues. So there's a little <laughs> bit of, uh, there's a little bit of inherent through the, uh, for some of the shenanigans that have gone on in those programs. So that's, that's yeah. more somewhat of a joke, I guess. It's a half joke, I guess. Well, as a Fordham guy, then I, we, I have no problem if you want to joke at Syracuse. Yeah, no, there's, there's certainly, uh, they've certainly had some knuckleheads through there over the years that have uh, expanded the uh, journalistic horizons of those who've been lucky enough to cover them. So, um, yeah, but, but what I'd say just, is, you know, in terms of career, like, that's the great thing about being a journalist. I'm sure you can relate to this, Mike, is that every day is different. You know, you yeah. never know where you're going to be. Like I've been in boats in the Caribbean for stories in my career and I've been in Alaska and I've been in jail and I've been, you know, you just never quite know where you're going to end up next. And I think that's the, the, the joy of the job is the serendipity of the job. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know where, where you're going to go. You never know, you know, where that next phone call and that next turn is going to take you. So I'm, uh, you know, really lucky to have worked at places that, you know, allow, allow me, have allowed me to have the time and resources to, to go and, and try to write really great, complex, in-depth stories. Pete, I started this podcast with, with Ronnie Lott, and, you know, I said, hey, what's the advice that you give to, to young athletes? The JV tonight, huh? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> well, it's all good because the next episode is going to be Tony Reale as well. So we're going to stick on that college team because Tony and I went to school with each other. He's up coming up on next okay. week's show. But it's funny because Ronnie gave some advice and I had Matt Leinard on. And I said, Matt, you know, what are the things that you would tell a young quarterback who wants to play? And he, he had some advice for some of those uh, people as well. But because you're a writer and I think there are people who are going to be listening maybe to this podcast that want to get into journalism. If they want to go that route, what's what's the best piece of advice you would give them? Well, the I would I would say uh, I would say a couple of things like write a lot, you know, like go somewhere you're not going to start writing like, you know, some, some 
talented person in Esquire off the bat. Like you need you need to take baby steps. And writing is you know writing is a process. It's 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 difficult, and you have to learn how to do it short before you can do it long. Um, but w- what I would really say is, and I'm stealing this from uh, somewhere I, I read Adrian Wojnarowski said this once, and it's true, is that the guts of great writing is great reporting. So. It's, you know, you can, you know, there's only so many Bill Simmonses who can sit back and just riff and, and do that. And I feel like the profession is going more towards that. Like, to me, the most important part of writing something well is covering all the bases and making all the phone calls and being really, really thorough in reporting a story because that's what gives it depth and, that, and that's what gives it complexity and nuance and, and the things that are great more so than just something that is actually well written per se. That's great advice. And and actually, Pete, you know, I made reference to Matt, and I think you guys have some similarities with regard to some of the things you like to do away from work, so to speak. Um, Matt's got his foundation, the Matt Liner Foundation, which is really helping a lot of kids be active. And I know you live in that Boston area. You're on the board for a, a group that's called Play Ball. Give me a sense of, of – not to go with give me a sense, but give me a sense of, of what you um, – why you picked a group like this to be involved with. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. Uh, Play Ball is a charity founded by a former Georgetown lacrosse player by the name of Mike Harney. Uh, Mike woke up at age 25 on New Year's morning and kind of had an epiphany, like, boy, I'm lucky to be where I am. I'm working in finance in Boston. I'm doing really well. I have a great life. And he decided he wanted to give back. And so he started a charity called Play Ball, and it eventually you know, raised money and got a great board together and it, it, it essentially wanted to help youth sports, but didn't quite know the direction. And the, the direction we've gone into, Mike, is we fund, privately fund public public school sports at the junior high level in, uh, in some of Boston's poor neighborhoods. So basically, eight years ago in Boston, you know, the town has the Red Sox and the Patriots. There were no football or baseball programs available to kids in public schools in the city of Boston. So we thought that was just a glaring need. The only sports that the the Boston public schools paid for were basketball and track, which are great sports. But basketball is really only 12 kids, boys and girls, right? And uh, the motto of play ball is more feet on the field. So not only do we have now, we have a lot of sports now, uh, and we we fund almost 2,000 kids and we're growing. And uh, anyone who wants to donate can go to Play Ball Boston website to help us continue to grow. Um, but the, uh, the what, what we've done now is we have Double Dutch for Girls, which is awesome. Have you ever seen Double Dutch, Mike? Yeah, actually, I know a little bit about that because my mom, growing up in the Bronx, she used to talk about how as a kid she used to do that. And I couldn't fathom that, um, you know, that my mom was athletic enough to do the, those types of things. But she said they used to do that all the time when they were kids. Really, it, it is uh, it is a great it is a great sport and it is like hypnotic and intoxicating to watch. Yeah, sport. like I've gone to a lot of sporting events. You know, like consider you know myself somewhat of a connoisseur of that. It's my job, and I have rarely been as entertained as I've been going to the the double dutch matches that uh, that that we that we throw every winter. Um, so we have we have a robust girls program too with double dutch and volleyball and soccer. We just started hockey two years ago. And what we what we're doing is we're not trying to create all Americans. We're not trying to send send the Pac-12 its next best athletes. Although we would be happy if they did go to some of your fine institutions. Um, but what we're really trying to do is get more feet on the field for a really critical time in kids' lives. 
them out of trouble, to keep them engaged, to give them a sense of team and a sense of community and a sense of accomplishment. And at schools where there's academic struggles and, you know, there might be uncertain situations back at the, back at the home, uh, about 80% of kids in our program uh, are eligible for free and reduced lunch. So what we're trying to do is give these kids an after-school option. We're trying to give these kids a a, a chance to uh, play sports. And ultimately the core of it is uh, Mike Carney, where he grew up in the suburbs. You know, he basically only got to Georgetown because he was a really good cross player. So he wants kids in the city of Boston to have that same outlet, that to have that same chance to, to, to play sports and excel in that arena. I mean, think about this, Mike. When you were in junior high, how much did playing sports mean to you? No, I, I was just going to bring that up. I mean, that's all we did. Yeah. That was that was life, man. I mean, you you were playing every single day. Yes. Yeah. So our goal in the uh in the big picture is to give every single junior high kid in the city of Boston and we we help uh we help about 2000 and but that's still really, you know, 15% maybe. So we have so much more growing to do and that's the exciting thing is we've had a ton of success. We've made a ton of headway and we now sponsor more kids in the city of Boston than the city of Austin does to play sports. So we've yeah. become an indelible part of the of the you know school space in uh, in in the city of Austin. But we still have a ton of room to grow and a ton more work to do. So that's what makes it so fun and energizing. And I'm sure Matt, if he's trying to get kids more active, can can relate to this. Like you, there's a sense of accomplishment for where you are. But what keeps you going and keeps you trying to raise money and keeps you trying? To, my job is to get publicity for the organization. So this is great, Mike, because it's just yeah. a chance to, uh, to to publicize the great work that we do. Um, so, you know, we're always trying to, uh, you know, get get more people aware of the program because it's an easy sell, just like, you know, you, you can relate to it because that's all you did when you were in seventh grade. That was all you look forward to. You know, it's a tough yeah. time in life where your your identity is being formed and socially it's really an awkward time and sports is an escape. And we want kids to have that. We want kids to get the confidence. We want kids to experience being on a team. And really at the core of it, when you talk to the principals in our program, like with our football program, they'd be like, yeah. You know, Johnny only went to school three days a week. He was a three-day-a-weeker. I'm like, seventh grade? He only went to school wow. three days a week, but that's the reality. You know, that's that's not uncommon. And then, you know, you hear the stories. Well, now he goes five days, and his grades have shot up because he knows in order to play our sports, there's minimum attendance and there's minimum grades, and it's the carrot. And what we're, we want to do is give kids a carrot, give kids a, a reason to engage academically, and, it, you know, really get them to high school, you know? Like yeah. that's, you know, that's in, in a lot of cities in America, you know, getting to high school is a thing. And then when you get to high school, well, they have a reason. And, you know, we hear stories about our kids who are like, well, I'm going to go to this high school because they have hockey or I'm going to go to this high school because they have football and I want to play. Like we're giving them, you know, in, incentive and making them part of that community. It's going to make them better. It makes them better students. It makes them better citizens. And, uh, you know, it just really helps all those all those sort of intangible lessons you learn from being on a team. We, we, we've helped do that. So there's, there's a great feeling of accomplishment, you know, being and I'm a very small part of the organization, but at the same time, there's uh you know, there's a lot more work to do. And that, that's what kind of keeps you energized and going. Uh, that's truly awesome. And once again, it's playballfoundation.org. It's, it's really cool because you're involved in sports. I'm involved in sports and, you know, we didn't get to play 
you know, at the super high level and, and make millions of dollars with it. But at the same time, you know, I think about all those memories and all the fun that I had as a kid growing up and, and for what the group is doing and your your piece of that group. Um, it, it's truly special because I think a lot of these kids are going to look back and, and remember a lot of those moments on the field and the fun that they had uh, with a lot of their friends. So it's once again, really special. Playballfoundation.org. Uh, Pete, absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. Really appreciate you stopping by, giving us some, some obviously some advice on for young journalism uh, students who want to make a, a career out of this, not to mention kind of diving deeper into a really fascinating story where an AAU coach essentially is a drug dealer at the same time. It's uh, not one of those stories that you expect to see every single day. So Pete, thank you again for popping on with us. Hey, Mike, thanks for thinking of me and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, once again, great having Pete on the show. And, and typically what I've been doing is is sort of giving out that stat. And uh, once again, I'll give one that's sort of similar to the one that I gave with Matt and just sort of the importance of, of youth sports. But I'm actually on the playballfoundation.org website. And um, some of the numbers are really staggering when you talk about, um, you know, a lot of the schools, low-income communities, families that essentially don't even have uh, the resources out there. But at least according to their site, $1.5 billion was cut from school sports budget. Uh, a few years back. So I, I can't even imagine, um, you know, just how many kids are affected by that, just not even being able to get out onto the field. So Pete and that group over there, Playball uh, Foundation in Boston area, doing some fantastic things. Um, next week on the show, I made reference to it slightly, I believe, with with Pete, the Tony Reale, uh from the Horn is going to be joining us on next week's show. I'm going to be releasing these every Tuesday, is at least right now the game plan. Um, but really appreciate all the ratings um, that have been coming on in the iTunes site. Of course, you can catch us on blogtalkradio.com as well. Um, but continue to rate us, subscribe. You want to leave a review, got some feedback, you can always do that as well. And, and you can hit me up on Twitter at Mike underscore Yam, or you can follow me on my Facebook page. It's just Mike Yam. Thank you so much for listening, downloading, continue to rate us and write those reviews.